In our study of the book of Hebrews, we're coming to a section that makes heavy use of Psalm 95. Uh, the rest of Hebrews chapter 3 into Hebrews chapter 4 uh, utilizes this psalm um, quite emphatically. And so today we're going to look at that psalm to prepare ourselves for weeks to come. And as you'll see, Psalm 95 is simply a call to worship. Um, that is, it is the Lord calling His people, that is us, uh, to approach Him in worship, and He's instructing them in how to do that. Um, so as a result, it's beneficial in every way uh, to we who exist for that very purpose, the purpose of worship. And so I invite you to look at Psalm 95, verse 1, as we read the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the sheep, the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Faithful Lord, already you have spoken to us, calling us to worship, greeting us, giving us the law and the gospel and more. But now you speak to us through the preaching of your word. In accordance with the instruction of this passage, we pray, Give us ears to hear and cultivate our hearts to receive this word. And not only that, give us grace in our weakness to heed that word by faith that leads to obedience and not hardness of heart. And bless the preaching of your word. Strengthen your weak servant for that task and build up this flock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, immediately... When we read the words of this psalm, we see the mark of a call to worship in the words, O come. And that's a command. It comes from the Lord to His people. Come. That is a command to enter into the presence of Almighty God. Now, the early church father Augustine notes an interesting aspect of the language here in his commentary on this psalm. He writes, can a man be locally distant from him who is everywhere? <laughs> what he's saying is, is it not interesting that God would call us to come? That's in the physical sense, to come together, to be in a certain place, in a certain posture, when he himself is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There's nowhere we can go away from his presence. Well, it's a good point. But he continues, Augustine does, he says this, It is not by place, 
but by being unlike him that a man is afar from God. If therefore by unlikeness we recede from God, by likeness we approach unto God. Now to be sure, the people of Israel originally hearing this psalm, they would have strongly identified coming into God's presence with gathering in the tabernacle for worship. After all, that is the place where in the final chapter of Exodus we see God makes His manifest dwelling among His people. Furthermore, corporate worship was central to uh, the worship of Old Testament Israel. Corporate worship is central to worship in the New Testament. But the point of what it means to come before the Lord, to come into His presence, it's not about location. Okay, Gathering together is a given in the Scriptures. The point of what it means is about the heart. It's about hearing the Word of the Lord, receiving it by faith, and responding in obedience. That is the essence of true worship, and that is the essence of what this psalm is pressing into. The psalm is instruction to us, the professing people of God. And that instruction is to hear, to heed the call to true worship, and not to harden our hearts to the word of the Lord that calls us to such. And so we begin by seeing just what we pointed out, that the Lord calls His people to worship. This psalm, like many others, begins with that call, which is repeated in verse 6. We see it emphasized in that way. But the main takeaway from these first two verses in this psalm is that we do not bring ourselves into worship. Okay, The Lord calls us to worship. In other words, worship begins with Him speaking and us listening. That's where it starts. Only then can we carry out what the Bible presents as true biblical worship. And so on that point, let us begin there with God's call. It's appropriate to begin our corporate worship with a call that comes from God to us. Because worship is not a recommendation. Worship is a requirement. Worship is not a good idea, it is a command that the Lord gives to us. And as such, it means it's something that we cannot call ourselves into. We cannot simply conjure up this idea of worship and engage in something that seems good to us. No, we must hear the command that God gives to us. We must hear His word that comes out before us. In that way, worship is responsive. And maybe already you see kind of the connection as we have the order of worship that we print off every week that guides us, serves as an aid in our worship before God. As we go through this order of worship, we see that it isn't just that. It's responsive, and it begins with what? The call from God to come into His presence and to engage in the worship of His holy name. But as we proceed through, it doesn't only consist of God speaking to us, It consists also of our response to Him in confession, in song, in simple words of blessing. You see, this is the value of what we call the regulative principle. That is, that God is clear about how He ought to be worshipped. He regulates it. He communicates it to us. Because ultimately it's about Him, not about ourselves. 
He calls us into it. Now all that said, if you look through this, you could maybe get the idea by how structured it is, how structured generally Reformed folk are in their worship, that well, somewhere in this Bible there must be some place we can go and find this you know, lined out, every point by point. But if you studied your scriptures, you'll find that you won't find that. There is no single passage you can go to where Paul or some other apostle writes out for us, here's the ten steps to the godly and biblical worship. In fact, the Lord has given us great latitude within his command. There's nothing that says that the scripture reading may, must go here, or that the first song must come at this point and the last song at this point. But what we do find in the scriptures are many commands of the elements that are to be present in worship. That is what God requires, what is good before him. And so notice even in this psalm then, the things that are pointed out, the elements commanded. There is singing, let us sing to the Lord. There is a joyful noise, which we'll say more about what that is in a minute. There in the second part of verse 1, there's thanksgiving. There's songs, which emphasizes not only the vocal aspect, but the musical aspect of engaging in the worship of God. And what I want you to notice again is that all of these are responses that reflect our experience of the one who has called us. Again, they're not things that God says, here, you can do these things, you put them together however you want, have a good time. No, he calls us into his presence and says, engage in these things. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to him. Give thanksgiving in his presence. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, to be highly exalted. And that's why in verse 1, that phrase is included in there. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Again, what are we responding to? It's not merely a, a general call that goes out. We're responding to the Lord our God and who He is. And He is the rock of our salvation, the source of that salvation, the one who cares for us, comes to us. And brings us into his fellowship. I do just want to briefly look at these elements that are listed here in the first couple of verses. In verse 1, first, singing. I don't think anybody is scandalized by that. It seems right to sing. It is good to sing. It's good to raise our voice with the instruments that God has given to all of us. But secondly, we're told to make a joyful noise. Now, we don't use that sort of language. We may not know necessarily what is a joyful noise. We can probably list lots of things that are not so much joyful noises. But in the Hebrew, it means to shout out or to cry out. Now, when we hear that, that could uh, discomfort our sensibilities a little bit. Well, I'm not really comfortable with shouting in church. Well, take heart. There's some explanation to be given here. It's not talking about getting up and running around the church building and just making a lot of noise, but it's focused. Right? You'll actually notice in verse 2 that same phrase is repeated, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So certainly the emphasis here is in, again, that singing aspect, 
but it would also apply to other aspects of that engagement that we have in worship. It could apply to our responsive reading. It would apply to our confession or affirmation of faith, to our confession of our sins before God. You see, the idea is that in this worship, which is an interaction between God and His people, we are truly engaged. So we don't come in murmuring, just you know, kind of going through the motions, but we are engaged, we passionately sing, we cry out in that worship of God alone who is worthy. Thirdly, we're called to thanksgiving. I think that again is self-explanatory, but certainly worthy of note there, that we come into His presence with thanksgiving because of who He is and what He has done. And finally here we see songs of praise, as I mentioned, that has in view not just the singing aspect, but the musical aspect. Uh, David himself, you know, was an instrumentalist playing the harp. Uh, Many times throughout the Old Testament, we see musical instrumentation used in the worship of God. Music is a gift given from God to us for our enjoyment, but to be used for His worship. The point is, There's other elements to worship that we find commanded elsewhere in the scriptures. But these are some of the most prominent. And the big idea is that God speaks, calling us to worship, and we respond. Now that certainly is a pattern exemplified in our Lord's Day gathering, in the commanded gathering of the church, the Sabbath. But it's also a pattern for our daily lives. It's a pattern for how when we wake up in the morning, we go to engage and meet the day. For we are to live lives of worship. Do all things for the glory of God who made you, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do. And so from the time we wake up, here's a pattern before us. We listen for the voice of our God, which comes to us through these holy scriptures. And we respond with joy and thanksgiving that leads us to obedience. Worship begins with that word. And thus that brings us, as we will come later, to verse 7, the command there, the warning. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But before we get there, verses 3 through 7 offer some explanations, some key examples as to why we are to worship God. And that is, we are to worship God because He is our great King and Shepherd. In other words, God does not call us to worship without good reason. He's the Almighty Ruler of all things, the Creator of all things, and the Good Shepherd of His people. And because of this, He's worthy of our worship. He is deserving of that worship alone. And by the way, that worship, this section of the text, actually presents in physical terms of prostrating oneself to the ground, bending the knee, and kneeling before the Lord our God. But the point of this in summary, from verses 3 to 7, is that it's the knowledge of God that moves us to worship Him. It would seem fairly self-evident, but you cannot worship that which you do not know. 
if we do not have an awareness, even a, a mental knowledge of the one we proclaim to worship, we cannot actually render to him true worship. Because as we've said, worship is a response. It is something that we are called to as a result of who God is and what he has done. We see a, an, an element or an example of a contrast to true worship in Jesus' ministry, in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Jesus speaks of the Pharisees, and he quotes to them from Isaiah, and says, Well did the prophet Isaiah speak of you, when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus was getting after them, is that their so-called worship, it was all external, and therefore not true. It had the outward appearance of piety and of religious observance, but their heart was far from Him. That is, they did not truly know the Lord their God. They were not prompted to true worship, because they did not know Him. Now, in our experience, I would actually say that the things actually tend to go the other way. The error tends to go in a different direction. You know, maybe a handful of decades ago, uh, a sort of external legalism might have been uh, more prominent. But in our present day, it seems that people tend to reject the importance of external worship. You hear things like arguments that true worship is all internal, right? It's about feeling. It's about personal relationship with God, and therefore we can do that anywhere, anytime. We don't need a church, we don't need a specific gathering, we don't need the means of grace, you know, it's all me, my, and what I want. But the fact of the matter is, it shouldn't be either or. There's not this dichotomy between external Worship and religious observance and internal communion with God and being stirred to joy and obedience. You see, true faith through hearing the Lord's word results in external obedience in the way He has commanded. That is, a, a personal experience with God results in external obedience. That is why we come together as the church. As we've said, this is the culmination of what the Bible teaches us about what worship is to be. But Sunday morning on the Lord's Day is not the only example or the only time in which true worship takes place. You see, this is um, but a portion of what we are called to, an important portion nonetheless. But true biblical faith and worship is exemplified here but it's also meant to encourage us for daily faithfulness and obedience as we walk with Him. Now certainly, I don't want to present this as though we should always feel like worshiping when we talk about a personal experience. I think that's one of the downfalls again of much of the teaching of modern evangelicalism and especially in more charismatic circles. It's this idea that, well, if we believe the gospel, we should always just feel happy and 
blessed and joyful and we should always just be exuberant and ready to take on the world and worship God all the time. But the fact is, if you read through all 150 psalms, you're going to find many times where the psalmist is not happy, he's not um, experiencing great uh, worldly blessing or blessing in worldly terms of comfort and ease and that sort of thing. In fact, you'll find many times where he's distraught, where he's weary, where he's burdened, where he's unhappy, and so forth. But what you find in those psalms, and Psalm 13 is a great example of this, you find the expression of true burden, of true discomfort, of true struggle, but you find that paired with a conviction to true worship kind of presented in this way, that though things are difficult for me, though I am struggling, though I am suffering, still yet I will praise the Lord. Why is that? Well, it's because worship doesn't flow from feeling. No more than love flows from feeling. Worship, true worship, flows from conviction. A firm, hopeful belief about who God is. And so then we ask, do you believe that the Lord is God? Do you believe that He is our Savior? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is our righteousness? If so, then worship doesn't depend upon your changing circumstances. Worship depends upon our unchanging God. It's rooted in Him. Which is why no matter what we've been through this week, this month, this year, no matter what sort of things are coming against us, we can come among the Lord's people together on the Lord's day and we can receive the call to worship and we can respond in true faith and obedience because we're responding to who He is. He is unchanging. He's worthy of our worship. And that's why the psalmist here begins with God as creator and king before he moves on to other things. And of course, those two go together as creator, God has the right and the rule of authority over all of his creation. And you look at some of the things referenced. In his hand, in verse 4, are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So many times in Scripture, creation is set forth as a reason to praise God. As something giving evidence of who he is. The reason is, is when we look at the grandeur of the mountains, say, or if we think about the mystique of the, the depths of the earth, things we can't even comprehend, or maybe the vastness of the sea, all of those things we rightly understand are great, and they're magnificent. But the fact that God is creator over them, king over them, points us to the fact of how much greater that creator must be. And so in that way, all creation is intended to channel our focus from the creation itself toward heaven to God. That he is the exalted king and creator over all and worthy of our praise. But notice also, he created us to enjoy and to benefit from that creation. All right? Now, can you imagine uh, if somebody gives you a I guess it wouldn't technically be a gift, but maybe they say, here, I'm going to put this in your presence. It's really cool. You would love it, but don't mess with it. You can look at it, 
but you know you don't get to enjoy it don't play with it don't utilize it for anything it can be utilized for you can only look at it god doesn't do that with his creation he created us placed us within it and he gave us this creation to benefit from to use to his glory exercise dominion filling the earth that was the first command given to mankind but that leads us also then to see this more specific description of God as our maker and our shepherd. So he's not only the creator, he is our maker and he's our shepherd. Come, let us worship and bow down in verse 6. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. There's that shepherding imagery we see there. And the sheep of his hand. You see, now we're starting to hone in a little bit. Already this is a personal call, but now we see again another foundation of who God is that prompts us to worship, and that is that He is a personal God. He is called our Maker, our God. And in context, remember, this is from the standpoint of the professing people of God. Right? Those are the ones who are receiving this call to worship. This call... Though all creatures ought to worship the Lord their God, this call is not going out to the world. It's going out to the people of God. Those who profess to be His, who are gathered in His name. And the call is worship. For He is our God and our Maker. And as such, He's made Himself known to us and He cares for us as a shepherd cares for sheep. That's why we read John 10 this morning as part of our scripture reading. Because there in John 10, we see probably the clearest example of this truth and reality of Jesus being the good shepherd. That is, in Jesus, we see what is being talked about here. And I'll repeat for you a couple of those verses. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see that even in Jesus describing the gospel, there's the shepherding imagery that he is a shepherd who comes who cares for his sheep. In another place, the example is given of him going to find the wayward sheep and laying that sheep on his shoulders and carrying it back to the fold. That is a picture of the gospel, but notice what it's paired with. They will listen to my voice. His sheep hear his word, and they respond in faith and obedience. Now the psalmist certainly knew the loving kindness of God even at this point in history. He knew that God was the Savior. He knew salvation was coming finally, sufficiently, effectively for God's people. But Christ had not yet come at this point. How much more have we seen God as our Maker and our Shepherd manifested in Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us? All the more is this reason to worship, thus the repeated call in verse 6. Now I mentioned a moment ago that 
the language used of worship in verses 6 and 7 um, emphasizes the physical aspect of that worship. You see here, uh, this true worship um, is described in terms of posture. In fact, the word worship itself in the Hebrew means to prostrate oneself. But likewise, we see the language of bow down and kneel. See, all of these are, are postures of humility and reverence before one who is great and worthy of such reverence. Um, just as a personal example and part of the experience that I've had, uh, during the period of time, whenever Hannah and I and the boys were still in Arizona, uh, I was no longer the, the pastor of the church out there, and so we began attending a PCA church in Phoenix uh, just for a short time. And one of the things that was unique to us uh, about that church is that they actually had kneeling benches. Um, now, most Protestants, when they see kneeling benches, they think, you know, that's just a remnant of the things that the papists do, right? Uh, it's not something that we Protestants engage in. But what this church would do is at certain times of prayer, they would utilize these kneeling benches um, as a posture uh, in prayer, a posture of reverence, of bowing down before the Lord our God. Now that seems, again, maybe odd to some of us, but if you think about it, the scriptures often emphasize posture in worship and in religious observance of any kind. For example, in Luke 24, 50, when Jesus blessed his disciples, he lifted his hands in pronouncing the blessing over them. That's why at the end of our service, when the minister gives the benediction, the hands are raised. It's a blessing from God to his people. In a similar way, in 2 Chronicles 6, 13, that's a passage where Solomon prayed before the entire gathering of Israel at the dedication of the temple and there we read that he kneeled down and he lifted his hands toward heaven as he prayed for the dedication of that temple. And in another place, in Exodus 34, in a more informal setting, we might say, Moses, he saw the glory of God, and his immediate response, it says, was to bow his face to the earth and worship. Now the point in saying all of that is, if we're truly coming before the indescribably great and awesome God, our King, our Creator, our Shepherd, then it follows that it would be appropriate, especially in prayer, to bend the knee, to posture ourselves in such a way that reflects our reverence for the One who has called us into His presence. After all, we're not to love God just with our spirit, but with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. And that moves us then to something we've been mentioning and alluding to all along in the second part of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The point here being that true worship is to hear and obey God. Now, this section might actually seem a little bit out of place in this psalm that exists as a call to worship, but in fact, it fits quite perfectly, especially in light of an honest assessment of human nature. Because our sinful nature would have us to ignore the call, though we hear it, and to harden our hearts to it. 
that is even the influence of a remaining sin, even in the life of the Christian. And that's what the people of Israel did. They heard God's call, but they didn't respond in obedience. Now, there's a specific event that's referenced here. We won't read it all for the sake of time, but you can look at Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, and that recounts the specific event that is in view here, the events at Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. But in summary, this was the Exodus event. At this point, God had already brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, crushed the Egyptian army, provided for them on the other side. But not much time had passed. <coughs> Excuse me. And they came to a certain place, but they had no water. And remember, they were, at the very least, a half a million people strong. Perhaps as much as one and a half million people strong. And they had no water. That's a big problem. Well, when they came to this place, they didn't respond by seeking the Lord in confidence because of his promises. No, they responded by accusing Moses of seeking to kill them, and implicitly by seeking or by accusing God of seeking to kill them, and in effect rejecting the promises that they had made. Now, what's the failure that's in view here, where it says that they put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Well, at the beginning of the Exodus account, when God sent Moses in, the word that God gave Moses to speak to the people on his behalf was this, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. That couldn't be clearer. He didn't say, I'll bring you halfway there and then you're on your own. No, he said, I will bring you to that land. Likewise, in Exodus 14, later on, verses 13 and 14, God promised that he would work salvation, and he did it. He demonstrated that. And again, in the next chapter, after some already disobedience um, occurring on the part of Israel, in Exodus 15, 26, he says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. See, God had spoken. And not only had he spoken, he had delivered. He had demonstrated his, obedience, his faithfulness to his people, leaving Israel no logical reason to doubt him. Their disobedience came only from a hardening of their heart to his word. And that reminds us that obedience is rarely easy, even if it should be. It is rarely easy. Now for us, we find ourselves in a life situation, by and large, where there's little difficulty in gathering to worship the Lord. We have an immense amount of freedom in our setting here in this life. But in the big picture, believing God's promises requires us to trust Him when our situation looks less than promising. Otherwise, there'd be no need of faith. They'd simply call it knowledge. But it requires us to trust Him when our situation looks less than promising. And so, as a result, our desire for comfort often presents us with 
the dangerous uh, temptation to either ignore or disregard God's voice. And again, just so we're clear, I think we all understand this, but what we're talking about is not some mystical voice that comes into our head. We're talking about the word by which he has called us and spoken to us and directed us. And the temptation, because of our desire for comfort, is to ignore this word, which can oftentimes lead us into uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable experiences when we are obedient to it. And so for various reasons, we'll disregard it. Sometimes um, it's not blatant. Sometimes we rationalize. Sometimes we say, well, my situation is not exactly what's being talked about here, so it's different. I don't have to do what it says there. That may be what Israel did. Sometimes uh, we justify ourselves. We say, I know it says that, but here's what's going on. I really think it's okay. And sometimes it just comes from outright deceiving ourselves. Now, I, I really want you children to listen up right now, if you will. Listen to this part. Because that is the most dangerous position to be in. That is to hear something, to know something, but to just ignore it. To pretend it doesn't exist. To pretend it's not there. Because you guys especially, whether you profess faith in Christ already, or whether you're not even to a point where you're quite even sure what that is or what it means, there will come a point sooner or later where you have to make individual decisions as to whether you're going to follow Christ, being obedient, or whether you're going to go the other way. And now my prayer, the, the session's prayer, the church's prayer for all of you, just as for my own sons, is that you would never know a day of your life of not following Jesus. You'll never be able to remember a day in which you didn't trust in Jesus and have the salvation that he's given to you. But my point is, you're being raised in such a way that you are told about, taught, brought up in these covenant promises that God has given to you through your parents by virtue of these scriptures. You're taught of what it means to follow Him. And you're taught of what it means to be obedient to Him. And so there's going to come a day when you are tempted, where you're pressured to ignore the call of God in faith. And you're going to know, because you've been taught what God says, but you're going to be tempted to go the other way, to do something different. And if you ignore that voice, if you ignore his word, then each time you do that, it's going to get a little bit easier and a little bit easier and a little bit easier. That's what hardening of the heart is. When we ignore the voice of God such that our heart becomes callous and eventually that word doesn't even convict us at all. And that's the warning that this scripture gives is do not do that. If you hear that voice, Heed it. And heed it not because you can make yourself uh, right before God by being obedient, obedient, but heed it because of who He is, your shepherd, your maker, your creator, who has given His Son, that the one who has faith will have everlasting life. That's the obedience of faith that we are called to in Christ. God and His goodness are worth it. And so do not harden your hearts. And of course, that applies, though, to all of us when we hear his voice.
Because we've seen his work just as Israel did. Not in the same ways, to be true. But nevertheless, we have seen the building of his church. We have 2,000 years of testimony of the saints. We have lives around us that we've seen changed by the gospel. And most importantly and profoundly, we have the testimony of Scripture. Therefore, do not doubt the Lord, though you've seen his work. And the warning this text concludes with is that those who fail to worship will not find rest. Now the final point here in verses 10 and 11, it gets at one of those central biblical theological themes of the scriptures, which we're going to summarize today because we're going to look at this very deeply in the next couple of weeks. But that theme is entrance into God's rest. Now in context, what he's referencing was entrance into the promised land. Right? Deliverance out of Egypt, rest in a land flowing with milk and honey. But that was only a type of the greater rest that was promised and intended, which is the eternal blessedness and reward in heaven. The big idea is that those who truly worship will find that blessedness in the one whom they worship. You see, in the beginning, God created man to be in covenant with him. And God entered into that covenant that if man would uphold his part of the covenant, he would enter into God's rest. That's why this is significant here. It's why it's referenced later in Hebrews. That's not necessarily explicit in Genesis, but when we take the scriptures as a whole, we see that was the intention and the trajectory. That man would fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, and that through obedience to God, he would enter ultimately into the eternal rest of God in the heavens. And that rest is demonstrated in part by the fact that on the seventh day, God rested. And that was a perpetual rest in a sense, as the author of Hebrews makes note, right, from the foundation of the world. He could rest because his work was complete. And so the Sabbath was created for man that he could have a day set aside for worship to glorify God, resting in God's works, but also typifying that day that he would ultimately enter into that permanent rest of God through obedience that God had commanded him to. You see, man as an image-bearing creature was to replicate God's work culminating in rest in his God-given commission. Again, that's why the Sabbath was created. And this was even before sin entered the world, mind you. There was a rest appointed for God's covenant people. And so for Israel, where they come in, in part, is that their experience is a recapitulation of Adam's experience. The promised land was to be their rest. In a typical sense, if they were faithful to obey the Lord their God. But like Adam, they were not. They failed to enter it. And so we find ourselves in a similar position with one great exception. And that is, as we've already mentioned, the obedience that we're called to is no longer perfect works according to the law as it was for Adam. The obedience we're called to is the obedience of faith in Christ Jesus. 
He came, fulfilled the law on our behalf, perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient. And so the essence of the call of Psalm 95 as it comes to us is to come before the Lord through Christ Jesus, our Savior and King, by faith. He is our obedience. He is our way into that eternal rest of God in heaven above. And Israel is an example to us of the dangers of hardening the heart against that call, of rejecting it, ignoring it. And so for the instruction is simple. Do not reject His voice. Hear the word of the Lord. Know Him, come before Him, and offer true worship with a grateful heart. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we thank You for the rest that we have in Christ the entrance into that true eternal rest for which we were created. We ask, Lord, guard us from becoming wayward and give us what we need from your indwelling spirit to remain steadfast in hope, in joy, and in obedience to your revealed will through Christ. And may we never grow weary in doing that which is pleasing in your sight with joy before you, an expression of true worship and praise through Christ and for his glory we pray. Amen. But would you please stand and take out uh, once again your friendly song for the hymnal compared to the song.